Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Anae Sim, and today we are joined by John Charbonneau. John is a researcher at Delphi Digital who has very quickly positioned himself as a prominent thinker in the Ethereum space. He's written some absolutely incredible reports, which we will be linking to in the show notes, and I encourage all of you to read, that have even gotten the praise of Vitalik. So I'm very excited to have him here with us today to talk all about the merge and honestly why this is just the beginning for Ethereum. So John, thanks so much for coming. How are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be on. Yay, super excited. I'd love to know a little bit more about your background and how you uh, originally fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Yeah, so I I am very new to it. I had a totally non-crypto background, was just like a liberal arts major. I was working in finance the last two years, just working in banking. I only started to get into crypto last year. I basically started reading about it early part of last year. It was very topical with what everything was going on with macro at the time. And DeFi just kind of made a lot of sense as someone who is curious about this new tech and was working in traditional finance, it made sense. That being said, most of the DeFi stuff is still like kind of Ponzi game stuff. So I wasn't quite ready to go, okay, I want to go do this full time yet. And then I started to get more focused on what I actually do now, right at the end of last year, which is more of on the infrastructure side. So looking at how to layer ones actually work at like a pretty technical level. What is everything built on top of, you know, how to layer ones work, how to layer twos factor into that, you know, what's MEV, all that kind of stuff. So once I started to find that stuff, that was what really got me to go down the rabbit hole and got me like really to say, okay, I like I I was spending more time on this as my quote unquote hobby on the like on the side than I was spending on my actual job at that point. Um, so pretty quickly was, okay, I should probably just go quit and do this thing because it's a lot of fun. So finally started at Delphi in like April um, this year. So been around like four or five months now, something like that. And primarily focusing now on research on all that kind of stuff that I described of broadly infrastructure. Um, it's been a ton of fun getting paid to do what I was doing for fun before this. So I love that. That's always the best when it works out in that way. And I love the TradFi to DeFi transition as well. So like we we're talking about, you've written a lot about Ethereum, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Ethereum, which was really a deep dive on Ethereum's roadmap, also a complete guide to rollups. I'm curious, why has Ethereum piqued your interest in such a way? What about it makes you so excited? Sure. I'd say there's broadly two parts to it. One is definitely just the technical aspect from assessing different chains and like all the different approaches to scaling and like fundamentally how should we build these things. Their vision of this just route towards scaling and like their focus on values of decentralization and all those user guarantees. I have found that to generally be the most compelling vision. So that naturally draws me to it. I'd say equally important, if not probably more important, is honestly just the community and the development around it. You can't really compare the Ethereum community, like the development of it to anyone else. Like the amount of people who are working on it and who are working on it completely in the open, all of these research forums are just constantly people are posting in there with incredible new ideas of stuff that we'll be building for the next 10 years um, that doesn't really exist to that extent, like even close in really any other ecosystem. So it just naturally makes it incredibly fun to follow for someone who is just curious about all this tech being built. Like that is naturally the place you're going to gravitate towards is the place where, where are all these smart people just out there just sharing their ideas with everyone. I love that. You know, the advantages of building open source software. <laughs> and then yeah. to narrow in on 
one of the points that you mentioned in there, the vision of Ethereum, right? I think blockchain provides a really unique opportunity for us to hard code our principles and our values. So what do you think that means to the Ethereum community? What are these core principles that Ethereum is being built around? Sure. So part of it is broadly what I'd say everyone in crypto agrees of Obviously, we want to scale these things so that we can, you know, onboard billions of people that it's great UX, it works really fast, it's cheap, all of that. Um, I think everyone is trying to do that in crypto. The differentiating factor is, okay, how much do we actually still maintain those values that kind of started crypto in the first place? Of How much do we actually care about decentralization, which is more means to an end than anything in my mind, than rather some inherently good thing, but it's really about the user guarantees of like, what does that provide people of having an actually permissionless and censorship resistant system that you can actually have anyone around the world that you really have this cross border, like new financial system that anyone has free access to. And isn't just this, you know, censored centralized chain that, you know, it's a marginal improvement over TradFi because you get quicker finality and, you know, there's settlement deficiencies and stuff like that, um, which is, as someone who came from traditional finance, like that stuff makes sense and it is exciting. But what makes it really exciting and makes it like a complete retooling and not just a marginal improvement over traditional finance is all of those other guarantees. And like the Ethereum community broadly is just completely unwilling to sacrifice on those guarantees. And I think that is really, really important. I love that. I was reading a thread of yours the other day about the regulatory environment surrounding Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And one of the reasons why you pointed out that Ethereum is more of a target than Bitcoin is because of its dazzling functionality. I love that term, dazzling functionality. So I'm curious, like, what use case for functionality, like, really gets you amped up? Honestly, like, all of the traditional finance stuff, a lot of it does make a lot of sense to even just bring that on chain. Giving access to people freely to these traditional finance systems that have traditionally been very gated, very permissioned, and, like, not accessible to the world. Like, as someone who lives in the U.S., where, I, like, I have, you know, great access to all of these things, like, we're very privileged here, like, we have access to those things. When you start to realize and you speak to people around the world, very quickly you realize that, like, a lot of other people do not have those things. So really having just this cross-border system that everyone can tap into, even if it was just finance and none of the other gaming or NFTs or cultural stuff, which I think is like, it's very up in the air how all that kind of stuff plays out. Like, I, th I think it is very clear that finance makes sense um, for blockchains and like giving open access like to the world to that thing is really, really valuable. And then all of that other stuff, I think, is more of just like a wild card of it's going to be creativity of, you know, what, what do developers and users want over the next, you know, five to 10 years of what are, what are the cool things that people are going to build? Like, I think that is still a very open question. Like, what categories and that kind of start to take off? Like, what really makes sense to put on chain? And that it is a real improvement over, like, just having a Web 2 game. Like, why is it better to have a Web 3 game or social or any of those things? Mm -hmm. But the first order principle here, like you're saying, is bringing our financial system onto the blockchain because it just makes a lot of sense. Okay, getting into it, because I know listeners are curious about the merge. I want to ask you, you know, at a high level, what is the merge and what is it trying to achieve? Sure. So the very basic idea is that something like Ethereum or Bitcoin today you have what's called proof of work, and uh, obviously Ethereum will tra transition to proof of stake, 
What both of these are, they're called civil resistance mechanisms, is like the technical term. But the basic idea is just that, okay, we need people around the world to agree on some state and progress of that. And for people to, quote unquote, vote on that thing, you need to be able to tie essentially voting power to some kind of real world resource such that you can't have malicious actors just overwhelm the chain and take over the chain. So you need to tie it to some kind of resource. And then the basic idea is just, okay, what resource is it best to use? Should we be using electricity to, you know, run these miners to like compute this proof of work problem? Or should we just be using a more efficient proof of stake uh, civil resistance mechanism where we use just the token itself as like that is the security and you use that as the capital to secure the system? So at its core, like that's all it's really doing is it's just changing like what is the voting power essentially based on? And then obviously from there, there's a number of different benefits and trade-offs that you get from that. But the basic idea is that Ethereum currently is obviously running on proof of work. Whenever you send a transaction today on mainnet Ethereum, it's operated by like miners are the ones who are running that. And then running alongside it, there's what's called the beacon chain, which has been live since 2020. And that is running proof of stake currently, but has no execution. So I can't like send transactions or do anything on there. And then at the merge, basically the execution layer on the proof of work chain, which is where I'm able to interact with the chain. That's where users are able to send transactions, go on Uniswap, et cetera. All of that stuff gets swapped into the beacon chain. So you then quote unquote merge like the current execution layer where you get to do stuff, but you rip out all the proof of work stuff and you kind of swap it in for the proof of stake beacon chain stuff. Okay. So right now Ethereum is running on proof of work where, like you said, the network is secured by miners who have to actually purchase and run this mining hardware. And in exchange, they're they're consuming electricity by doing this. And then they're also getting block issuance and a portion of transaction fees. What the merge is going to do is it's going to transition Ethereum from a proof of work to proof of stake, where the network is now going to be secured by validators, where they're going to stake their ETH to validate the network. And this significantly reduces the electricity cost. Do I have that correct? So it's really just this transition. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's the basic idea. And then the beacon chain. So like you said, the beacon chain has been around since December of 2020. What was the purpose of this? So the beacon chain is already running on proof of stake, while in parallel, like Ethereum is running on proof of work. What's the thought process around that? Yeah, the reasoning for having it running for quite a while is basically just test run. Like, hey, let's make sure this thing actually works before we transition a several hundred billion dollar financial system into this thing. Like, you need to be very, very cautious about that for obvious reasons. You will be completely swapping out civil resistance. Like, it, it is very technically challenging to make sure that all this proof of stake stuff works very well. Um, you'll be completely changing what's the actual consensus algorithm or mechanism that Ethereum uses. Because in proof of work, it's very simple. Both Ethereum and Bitcoin use just what's called Nakamoto consensus, which is, you know, you'll hear the longest chain or more accurately, the heaviest chain is just what you see as the as the valid chain is just whichever chain has the most hash power behind it. Like whoever's put the most hash power into mining those blocks, that's the head of the chain. When you go to proof of stake, that consensus algorithm gets quite a bit more complicated. So Ethereum will be using their new one will be called Gasper instead of Nakamoto consensus. And it is significantly more complicated. No one has ever run Gasper before. Ethereum is the first one who's doing it. So running that new mechanism on the side for 
several years to be incredibly cautious, make sure all this stuff works on the side. Makes a lot of sense before you actually just like actually merge. There's a reason they've moved very slow on doing this. It's because they are just being incredibly cautious about it. That makes a lot of sense. And then I have to ask this because I feel like some people will genuinely be curious. Is there a world where people can decide to stay on proof of work and not transition into proof of stake? Or it's like once Ethereum transitions into this new reality, everyone has to abide by the rules that are in place now. So the chain will fork at the merge, basically. So the vast majority of capital and users and developers and everyone, they're all just going to follow the proof of stake chain because that is what we have acknowledged as, hey, this is what we want as a community. This is what we're putting our effort behind. But there will be people who run a proof of work, Ethereum fork, after the merge. There will be significantly less miners and developers and all that who are running it, but it will be a functional somewhat chain where miners are continuing to use this thing. It will have much lower security. Realistically, basically everything on the chain is going to break the second the merge happens because like I, like as simple examples, if you have stable coins, something like USDC, where it is like a centralized entity that's backing this thing, they can't allow this thing to exist on both chains. So something like Ethereum can exist on both chains. So I can have my Ethereum on proof of stake and on the uh, the proof of work fork, you will have some Ethereum for the proof of work fork, which will just be worth a lot less. But something like USDC cannot exist on both chains. So that's a simple example of Circle, who's the issuer of USDC, will say, we are only going to honor this on the proof of stake chain. We are not going to honor it on the proof of work chain. So to the extent that USDC is used in DeFi, where it is used massively in DeFi, like let's say you took out a loan against USDC, like all of those things just break at the merge on the proof of work chain. So on the proof of work chain, it's just going to be mayhem the second the merge happens, like all the DeFi is going to break. No developers are going to be maintaining protocols anymore. So the chain will continue. I find it like incredibly, incredibly unlikely that there's any meaningful future to it it'll mostly just be like a mess in my view and then kind of fade away. That's interesting. So really what I'm hearing is it's like, first of all, shit is going to break on proof of work. And second of all, it's the community that you're building around this proof of stake chain. The Ethereum community has acknowledged that this is the future that they want to move towards and they're building for the future, not past states. What are some of the biggest underlying motivations of transitioning to proof of stake? There are several benefits and trade-offs. In my mind, it is strongly worth doing it. The benefits significantly outweigh any trade-offs that there are. So, I mean, one really easy one that people talk about a lot, which is pretty quick to explain, is just energy efficiency. Obviously, proof of work is incredibly energy intensive. There are debates that like people in the Bitcoin community will say, to the extent that we build out a lot of mining hash power, this thing can kind of you know move up and down depending on how much electricity is needed in the area. So, you know, they could say that this incentivizes building out robust infrastructure in an area. And then if there's, you know, a storm or, you know, people living around us need more electricity, we could shut our miners off. So it incentivizes building out infrastructure. And then we could, you know, meter it based on how we need. I tend to think that that argument is rather weak, to be honest, and that it uses a massive amount of electricity that is just simply, okay, we could just not use this and not deal with all of those issues. And so that's what proof of stake accomplishes is, okay, it's just super efficient. Like you run it on your computer and you're done. You don't need to run any kind of complex hardware that is, you know, burning a bunch of electricity. So that's a pretty simple one. Other part of it, I would say, is economic. So 
that's why people get very excited about the merge from, you know, traders, that perspective of which I'm not a trader, but it is massively improved economics going from proof of work to proof of stake. Because I mean, something simple like say the block rewards and tips. So like when I pay a transaction on chain, part of the base fee is burned. So that's, that won't change, but the tip and the issuance of like, there's a block reward of, you know, we give out a few ETH for everyone who creates a new block. Today, that issuance, that tip, and there's also another part, probably don't need to get into too much detail, but MEV, minor extractable value, that also gets paid to miners. So all of that is value, which is effectively just leaking out of the system and going to these parties. So you have to pay an incredibly expensive amount like to these miners to secure your chain. In proof of stake, that completely flips, where you no longer have that. One, issuance decreases incredibly because... It's really cheap to run a validator. You just have capital cost of like, I have to put some ETH up, but I don't have to run all this expensive hardware. So you can like have lower issuance to validators than you need to incentivize miners overall. And also all of that value now accrues to Ethereum and the token itself, as opposed to leaking out to miners who are not holding Ethereum. If you hold Ethereum, you can stake it in the network and you can be the one who receives all these words. So all that value just flows back to Ethereum itself then. Okay. And I think you bring up an interesting point here and I want to address it because I feel like it's one of the big misconceptions surrounding the merge is that scaling is obviously a buzzword when it comes to the merge. A lot of people think that this transition is going to quote scale Ethereum. What is your response to that? Yeah, so I would say it is, yeah, it is generally very separate from scaling. You will not see massively cheaper fees after the merge happens. Um, That is not what the merge is intended to do. It's a change to the security and all these economic properties of Ethereum, which are beneficial, but it is not directly a scaling solution. You'll hear people say that, like, it probably will marginally increase throughput just to the extent that block times will decrease a little bit. Because on average, a proof-of-work block is 13 seconds, give or take, with variability. And after the merge, it'll be a fixed 12 seconds every block. So assuming you have the same amount of transactions that are fitting into every block, if they're put into a shorter time span, you get like a few percent higher throughput. But it's not intended for scaling at all. That just happens to be a marginal side effect. In reality, all of the scaling stuff, which will give higher throughput, both to rollups built on top of Ethereum and eventually to the base layer, those are all separate upgrades. That being said, moving to proof of stake does make it easier to do several of those upgrades, just because when you have proof of stake and you have this validator set, which can directly attest and vote on things, that does make it easier to do several of these upgrades like later down the road. But it itself is not directly a scaling solution. So it's not like after the merge, your fees are going to be cheap all of a sudden or rollups are going to you know, start going crazy and have really cheap fees. Those are all upgrades that are going to come like down the line in the next few years. Mm, Yeah. What changes are you going to see from an end user perspective? Is this going to be drastic or not much of a change from what's already happening? Yeah. For everyday users, you basically won't notice a thing, assuming everything goes well. But yeah, like there won't be really any change of like really much at all for either user perspective, an app that's building on Ethereum rollups. Like there's really no significant changes that like anyone is going to notice or really need to take into account. I do know that there's changes though surrounding validators, right? So who is actually able to validate Ethereum and contribute to its security? Can you describe that a little bit and the effects that we will see post-merge? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that is one of the other big benefits in my mind of proof of stake, though this is a more contested point, I would say. Um, well, I guess the other ones are contested as well, if you ask Bitcoin people. But yeah, so the security of it completely changes from you are reliant on this real world thing where miners are all running, you know, ASICs and like GPUs to secure the chain. So your economic security is based on the fact that it's really, really hard for me to go out there and buy enough ASICs such that I can have 51% of the hash power of Ethereum. Like that's an expensive thing to do to just like go get all that hardware, start running it, pay the electricity costs. Like that, that is an expensive thing to do. That's why you have it as a silver resistance mechanism. After the merge, that will completely change. So that obviously goes away. Um, now your economic security is based on the fact that, okay, validators have a certain amount of ETH staked. And okay, now you can very cleanly calculate what is the cost of an attack by basically looking at, okay, what is the value of ETH? Like what percent of it is staked? Okay, this is the value that is staked. I need X percent to do this attack. And in general, it is far more capital efficient and gives you higher economic security. Assuming, especially as like Ethereum grows into hopefully, and I certainly believe it will, like a very large multi-trillion dollar asset, that's how you get an incredible amount of security. If you're at the point where, you know, there's trillions of dollars staked, that becomes a pretty insurmountable economic hurdle to overcome if you wanted to attack the network of you would have to buy the majority of ETH stake to start to attack the network. So that becomes a very, very high capital cost, which starts to scale with the fact that as this chain gets more successful, the underlying asset gets more valuable, it becomes even harder to attack it over time, um, which is like a very good cycle to get into. So that's kind of a beautiful thing, right? If I'm interpreting this correctly, it's for Ethereum to reach peak success, it needs to reach peak decentralization. Yeah. So I would say there's multiple parts of security. Part of it is economic security. Um, you could, in theory, have economic security with a very centralized stake where the cost to attack would be very high. But if a centralized entity like has a bunch of delegated funds to them, well, then it becomes less so the case. So that is why Ethereum, one, cares about moving to proof of stake for that higher economic security and having a valuable asset. But then also on top of that, you want to have a decentralized validator set. So you don't have, say, everyone in Ethereum just delegates their Ethereum to, say, Coinbase to stake for them. Well, then Coinbase actually has your money at that point and like they're the one who are running the validator. So that's why Ethereum cares about, okay, we want to make sure that stake is decentralized so that you can't have just a couple of parties who run the majority of stake that can start to do malicious things. What are the current efforts to encourage that type of behavior within the Ethereum ecosystem where people aren't just delegating their funds to a Coinbase and are actually individually taking on that kind of responsibility? Yeah. I mean, so part of it is certainly just community, I mean, community pressure of like, this is something the community cares about a lot. Like we are going to very strongly promote, hey, you should run an at-home validator. That being said, you also have to realistically do more than that. You have to make it very easy. You have to economically incentivize people to do it. So I would say the reality is honestly today, it's more the former than the latter of it's just, hey, you should do this because it's a good thing. But it's pretty easy for me to just like give my money to Lido or give it to Coinbase. And then like, I don't have to deal with running a validator. You know, I have to use up a bunch of, you know, hardware requirements because, you know, the Ethereum state size is large and I don't feel like using up like my whole laptop to do this. So that's why Ethereum has to care about. And this is something that a lot of other chains don't necessarily value is, okay, how do we keep these hardware requirements, these user requirements really, really low to run a validator? Because if, the hardware requirement is you need this massive supercomputer to do this. Well, then 
definitely I'm going to say screw it and I'm just going to like delegate to someone else. But if that opportunity cost starts to become, I can do this with an incredibly low amount of technical ability and incredibly low amount of, you know, consumer hardware that like I could literally do this on my laptop and it's using, you know, a few percent of my laptop's computing resources, then it's really easy for me to do it because then like, why would I pay a margin for, you know, why should I let Lido take 10% of my fees or let Coinbase take 25% of my staking rewards? Like I'll just do it myself because it's really easy to do. So that is a massive part of Ethereum scaling is as we increase throughput, we can't just do it by increasing hardware requirements because otherwise it completely gets rid of that whole goal of like remaining decentralized. So Ethereum's vision is very much, okay, how do we scale this thing by increasing throughput, but also making sure that it's really easy for users to validate and to verify the chain Um, because that's what real scaling is. I, I wouldn't consider increasing hardware requirements scaling. It increases your throughput but you decentralize the chain. So it's a balance of those two things is what scaling really is in my mind of increasing throughput while into the entire system while also keeping it really easy for end users to say, okay, I know that everything checks out on the chain because it's really easy for me to verify it. And then to clarify, there's no financial requirement to be a validator, right? So there is an upfront capital cost of you just you just need to have ETH on hand. Um, you, you do need to stake ETH so the minimum requirement is 32 ETH, which is like a significant amount of capital. Hopefully that requirement does come down over time to a lower number of ETH, whether it be 16 or something else. And that is certainly something that like Ethereum wants to do. Realistically, that will take a while for it to be able to do that. That will take further technical improvements to make it easier to have like a lot of attester signatures across this um, validator set, better compression, stuff like that, such that you can easily support the messaging overhead of a higher number of validators because you reduced the number of ETH requirement. That is something that they want to do, but also over time, keeping in mind that like the price of ETH would probably increase. So like it, it is a balance of those two things. I know there are also protocols like Rocket Pool that are doing a lot in that space. I think the requirement to be a node operator is 16 ETH because they're delegating as well. Mm-hmm. So yep, that makes sense. Um, let's get into the misconceptions a bit more. I know that this is a topic that you're particularly passionate about, especially when it comes to censorship resistance. So something that some folks are saying especially Bitcoiners, is that the merge is going to solidify Ethereum's concession to censorship. What is your thoughts around this? Uh, How would you respond to people who are of this ideology? Yeah, so this is obviously something I've been very vocal about. Um, I I think that's completely incorrect. Um, I think that it's understandably a difficult argument. Like, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to is proof of stake more censorship resistant than proof of work? Like there are ways in which it's better. There are ways in which there are trade-offs. Like it's certainly more complicated, especially when you look at Gasper, which is a relatively complicated consensus algorithm. Like it's certainly a very complicated problem to understand what exactly are all the different threat models now. That being said, like I can get into the technicals of like what the different attacks and stuff are, but the TLDR for me is like, I do not believe at the end of the day that is at all the core of the issue. Whether Ethereum stays on proof of work or it goes to proof of stake, these censorship issues do not go away at all. They still fully exist. And you're even starting to see that right before the merge now, where, like, for example, after OFAC blacklisted, like, all these Tornado Cash, the smart contract and, like, associated addresses, 
one of the largest mining pool operators, Ethermine, they saw that and said, okay, we're going to start censoring OFAC transactions. We're, it, like any blocks that we mine, we are not going to include them in the blocks that we mine. So you can debate the like different like validator centralization and like what they'll do. But I mean, that's a very clear example of like this can happen. So if more miners decide to take that stance and the majority of miners are taking that stance and they will not include OFAC transactions in the chain, you have a censored chain. So you certainly can have it on proof of work and you certainly can have it on proof of stake if the majority of validators are saying, hey, we're going to censor this chain. We're not going to include any of these transactions in it. That being said, I think that you have significantly better recourse in proof of stake, which I think is like a very, very key part of its security. And which I think that a lot of people are misunderstanding as this last minute idea that like in the last few weeks where people are getting worried of, okay, the SOFAC stuff is happening. What happens if Coinbase and Lido and like all these other big staking providers, like they say, we're going to start censoring transactions. The Ethereum response to that in large part has been, okay, if you start to do that, we can slash you. Like we can either do like user activated soft fork where all of your stake gets leaked out. We could hard fork and slash you. But basically you have this clear recourse of, okay, if you try to do this censorship, you will lose all of your money and like you will not be on this chain anymore. That is not a recourse that you fundamentally have in proof of work. If you want to fork out or like get rid of basically all of these censoring miners, you could change the hashing algorithm, but then you blow up basically everything um, where even all the honest miners get screwed because now none of their hardware works. And now you just start from like a very low security chain where people are running GPUs and then they could just attack the chain again because there's a very low hardware cost um, to overcome. So your recourse is significantly worse than proof of work. And in proof of stake, I think that while the recourse is great if you do need to do this, I also think that is an incredibly significant deterrent to the point that you will just never have this option probably happen. If I'm Coinbase or one of these big providers and I see that my options are, if I censor, like the chain is just going to burn all my money, I'm probably just not going to go do that thing in the first place. Like, because then you're going to fork the chain and then like hope that people follow your censoring chain. And I don't think that anyone's going to follow that censoring chain because you have like a valueless chain at that point. So I think that proof of stake is actually able to deal better with that. The reality is the censorship issues don't go away, whether it's proof of work or proof of stake. I think the big difference of like why people are going after Ethereum and their like regulators are not going after something like Bitcoin is because Ethereum scares them. Like Bitcoin, you can't really do a whole lot on it. Like it doesn't scare them that much that I can send you Bitcoin and then you can send someone else Bitcoin and then they can send someone else Bitcoin. Like they get scared when there's a privacy solution on chain and like they don't know what's going on in there and they see hacks and they see North Korea is laundering money and like you see all these scary headlines. If you're a regulator and you don't particularly understand how this really technical thing works and you see that North Korea is using this chain to launder money, you're probably going to get scared and try to regulate that thing. Um, like that is inherently what draws the attention of regulators and all these people who want to just have control over the system is it is doing things which have traditionally happened within like the wall gardens of traditional finance that they have a very tight control over. And now that that thing is happening outside of wall gardens, like they're naturally going to be afraid of that and figure out, okay, how do we address this thing? Um, so like that is very much what is drawing the attention of regulators. In my view, it's not a proof of stake versus proof of work thing. Proof of stake versus proof of work just slightly changes how you deal with that censorship at the end of the day. And I don't think that either one is like a magic bullet. Like it's it's ultimately a battle that's going to need to be fought on like on the regulatory front in either case. Mm, okay, that's very interesting. So if I'm understanding this correctly, are you 
predicting that maybe there's a shift down the line between people who are more ideologically driven versus those who are abiding by the regulatory landscape? So for the Ethereum core protocol itself, I don't think it is even remotely feasible for it to be a regulatory compliant censoring chain where like OFAC transactions are allowed. I think that that is a completely valueless chain at that point, and you have completely lost everything that has made that chain special. And so if you try to fork the chain and like have this censoring chain, that thing would just die and go away in my view. I don't see any benefit to that thing at that point. That is what fundamentally makes Ethereum very special is the fact that it combines all this functionality with all of those original guarantees that, you know, Bitcoin has promised us from the start of the censorship resistance, the permissionless. And that is like the remaining question is, can you actually get those two things together successfully and grow this thing? Can we grow this thing to billions of people, onboard institutions, onboard regular users around the world and have all this functionality while at the same time maintaining regulators around the world, not freaking out, not letting, you know, anyone use this thing? That is going to be like a very difficult battle to do. Ultimately, I think that is something that's going to win. If you ended up in this world of say that those are completely not reconcilable things and we have only censoring chains that are OFAC compliant and each, you know, there's a there's a US chain, there's a China compliant chain and there's all these different chains. Even if that did happen and people find any use case for those things, I certainly don't think Ethereum makes any sense there. Because at that point, like, what, like that is what makes Ethereum special. Like, at that point, why wouldn't I just use the hot new tech of I'll run, whether it's Sui, Aptos, Solana, like, whatever new chain there is that, like, has higher throughput. And I don't really care about decentralization anymore at that point, because I just accept that I'm using a centralized censorship chain, that I'm just using this thing because it has, like, marginal benefits over traditional finance. Like, at that point, like, Ethereum has kind of no future there. Ultimately, I am hopeful that those things will be reconciled. And the Ethereum base layer like will be able to remain neutral, that it is this kind of just networking layer that sits underneath everything. Ultimately, I do expect plenty of stuff built on top of that to be regulatory compliant. If you want to bring institutions on chain, like you're already seeing it today where, you know, to interact with certain lending pools, it's a it's a wall garden and you have to be KYC to lend in this pool to borrow from it. Like I definitely expect use cases like that to happen. People will want to use those things and they will want to be very regulatory compliant. Maybe you have some roll-up chain that is fully compliant and like all these different things. And that's fine. Uh, like I, I have no issue with that. But the underlying core protocol itself absolutely has to maintain that censorship resistance in my view to like have the to have the value and the vision that like we see in this thing today. Mm, for Ethereum to be Ethereum. Exactly. But that's really interesting. I resonate with a lot of those points. And I hope that it plays out in the ways that we're building towards. Because without that, exactly like you're saying, like, what's the point? And I think you end up just building a Ready Player One type metaverse where it's big tech on steroids. (laughs) Okay, last question for you, John. So I was reading your Hitchhiker's Guide to Ethereum. And something that stuck out to me was I feel like the merge part was only like 5 to 10% of the actual article. And a lot of it, you were talking of some of the stuff that we've covered today. And from what I can gather, it's the merge is really the foundation for what Ethereum can accomplish in the future, right? This transition to proof of stake is setting us up for a, the real vision that Ethereum will hopefully be able to live up to. So what are you most excited about in a post-merge environment? 
Yeah. So definitely the merge has honestly been, I know that everyone has been super excited about it for months. It's honestly been the thing that I've been like least excited for on the Ethereum roadmaps, like since I've started following Ethereum, which is kind of funny to watch everyone on crypto Twitter. That's all they talk about. Like fundamentally, the merge is exciting. Like we've known it's coming. It's a great overhaul of the economics, the environmental, the security, all these different things. It's ultimately not the thing that's going to onboard billions of people into crypto and let alone onto Ethereum. To do that, you need to scale and you need to increase throughput and like remain decentralized and make it even easier for people to validate and verify the chain. And so those are the kind of two things that are going to happen, I think, hopefully pretty rapidly in the coming years, um, where there hasn't been really meaningful progress in Ethereum's history on how do we actually scale the base layer itself to optimize. So like the main idea of Ethereum's roadmap is, you know, in the last couple of years, it's the roll-up centric roadmap. People have heard, obviously, that is the main way that Ethereum is planning to scale. So the biggest near-term priorities after the merge are basically, how do we make the base layer really good and really cheap for roll-ups to use it for retaining the security of Ethereum while getting really cheap fees for users on roll-ups? Um, so that means stuff like dank sharding, proto-dank sharding, all that kind of stuff, which TLDR of it is basically rollups use data on Ethereum. So Ethereum needs to find a way to provide availability of a lot of data so that, you know, rollups can post a ton of data. It'll be really cheap for them. And if it's really cheap for them, that means rollup users get really cheap fees. So that's going to be some of the really exciting stuff that like a lot of the focus will turn to after the merge is doing that while making it also really easy for validators on the base layer, not increasing their requirements because you're just throwing a bunch of data at them. So it's complicated to do that, but they have a very compelling vision to do it. And then the other part is also, you can actually scale the base layer itself where the Uniswap on you know living on L1 can actually get cheaper down the road. That's, I would say, a secondary concern for the most part compared to scaling the data layer for rollups because it is a rollup-centric roadmap right now. But there are things like you'll hear statelessness and ZKVM. And the basic idea of those kinds of things are like there are several bottlenecks to being a validator today on like your hardware requirements of what you need to do. So I need a certain amount of like state size that I need to hold on my computer. I need a certain amount of bandwidth to be a validator because of, you know, what's running through my computer. And the basic idea of those things is how do we remove progressively each of those bottlenecks to be a validator of the chain to verify the chain. And as you remove those bottlenecks and make it even easier to be a validator of the chain to run a full node of the chain, you can then scale the base layer by very safely increasing throughput on the base layer because you made it even easier at the same time to be a validator, like a full node of that chain. So that is all going to be really exciting. It's going to take several years to do all of that. But like that, that is the really exciting research stuff to me is how do we scale this thing? And how do we make sure to retain like all of those guarantees, the, the kind of stuff that Bitcoin promised us from the start of, I can run a full node on my computer and like I can always know that everything's okay. Like I don't need to trust anyone. Yes, incredible. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on. I feel like I have definitely learned a lot through this conversation and I hope our listeners did too. Um, for people who want to follow along with your thinking, your threads, your research reports, where can they find you? Uh, mostly just Twitter. It's probably like 50-50 between talking about Ethereum infrastructure stuff and then posting a bunch of memes. So if you're interested in that, John Charbonneau on Twitter. You do post a lot of memes. And I saw in your Twitter bio that there is a uh, upcoming Substack newsletter that's about to be released. So make sure to subscribe to that as well, everybody. 
there is. Ho- hopefully later today. So should be out by the time of this podcast. Okay, amazing. We're so excited. Well, thanks again, John. Uh, great to have you on. And we will see you all on the next episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. Bye, guys. Guide you down.